Well, good morning, everyone. We're so glad you're here with us as we, as we continue in this series up all night. And I want to ask you to do something with me this morning. You know, we had an outdoor service a little while ago. And because we had our outdoor service today, our TV wasn't working out there. All the media that we had prepped for this message, we couldn't use. And so we had to improvise. And uh, I asked everybody to do something that's going to make sense in a second when I actually start talking you through what we're going to talk through today. I want you to do it here, too, because it worked really well. So would you stand up for a second? And uh, I want to invite you to find someone you do not know, not the person you came with, somebody you do not know. And I want to ask you to talk about this. When you hear the word coach, who or what comes to your mind? Now, I'll just say, I'm from the Chicagoland area. I think of Mike Ditka. You can't not think of Mike Ditka, the ultimate coach, the Bears, all of that stuff. I want you to go talk about what comes to your mind when you hear the word coach. Find someone you don't know and take two minutes to talk about that, all right? you got about another 30 seconds 30 seconds and then uh to make sure you wind up a little bit all right you can you can make your way back to your seats when you're done all right i'm curious just shout out what kinds of things did people say anybody besides mike ditka anybody anything come to mind what steve kerr Steve Kerr also spent a good amount of time in Chicago playing for the Bulls. I'll say that. Uh, who else? What else did? What? What else came to mind? Bill Walsh came to mind. What? Somebody? Are you yelling Cheers? Like the TV show Cheers? Oh, the bartender was named Coach. That's what it was in the first season or so. Yeah, that's right. What else? What else? Ted Lasso. Yes. I'm so, Did anybody else say Ted Lasso except for that guy? Ted Lasso, absolutely. We'll talk. Who's, what's that? The menu at Vicks. <laughs> he said all the dishes are called coach this, coach that, coach. And by the way, thank you for standing up and just making this place better, more formal. I appreciate. That is a confident man who would just stand up at the menu at Vicks. I love it. Well, uh, uh, the way I grew up, when I heard the word coach, it just meant one thing and one thing only, a person like this right here, Coach Taylor from Friday Night Lights. Uh, when I thought of coach, I thought of a person in a windbreaker and khaki pants and maybe the, the sunglasses hanging from the sunglass cord, obviously a headset to talk to other coaches, uh, calling a timeout, screaming, generally looking angry and dissatisfied, and I am here for every single minute of it. 
Or maybe like that guy up there in me, you think of Ted Lasso. Uh, if you didn't say Ted Lasso, any other Ted Lasso fans out there? Ted Lasso fans? Uh, I love that he, he's got the stereotypical visor. He's got the whistle around the neck, the tracksuit, and the mustache. This is the perfect coach mustache right here. Uh, by the way, Ted Lasso was one of the most popular Halloween costumes of the past few years. Lots of famous people went as Ted Lasso. Uh, here is CNN's Jake Tapper as Ted Lasso. We got Ryan Seacrest as Ted Lasso. And actually, Mitt Romney is Ted Lasso. <laughs> when I hear the word coach, these are the kind of images I think of. At one point in time, the word coach was used exclusively for people who were leading a team in some kind of sport, or if not a team, uh, maybe coaching an individual if it was some kind of solo sport. Although, even as I say that, uh, you don't take lessons from a golf coach. You take lessons from a golf pro. But now the word coach has worked its way into all sorts of industries and actually uh, coaching has grown to be a $1.08 billion industry in the United States. Coaches that aren't just sports coaches. Uh, this was virtually non-existent 25 years ago, but now you can hire a vocal coach, a life coach, a fitness coach, a financial coach, a food coach, a mindset coach, a sleep coach, which is appropriate for this series, a weight loss coach, a marriage coach, and a divorce coach, which sometimes are the same person, which I just find ironic, a public speaking coach, a grief coach, a legal coach, which is basically a nicer way of saying a lawyer, uh, a style coach to help you with your fashion, an image consultant coach to help you with your image. There's an endless amount of coaches. In fact, uh, I am thinking maybe if I could get you to start calling me a spiritual coach instead of a <laughs> pastor, maybe a Jesus coach, could we try that? Um, one of the most significant types of coaches that is now available is something called a parenting coach. And when I say parenting coach, I'm not talking, I'm not talking about your mother-in-law who thinks she's a parent coach, right? I'm talking about a professional paid coach. When it comes to bedtime, homework, uh, managing meltdowns, many people are not relying on their friends or their own parents to give them advice. They're turning to parenting coaches who charge anywhere from $125 to $350 a session. And many people feel like they are worth every single penny. Uh, for example, one couple, Megan and Michael Flynn, used to dread bedtime with their kids every night. They, they, they take two hours to put their kids to bed. If, if you have had little kids at some point, uh, you know the drill. Read me another book. I want to drink a water. I need to go to the bathroom. Um, in fact, the song we just heard, I, I, I like to, to make myself go to sleep when I'm awake. Whatever he was singing about fireflies. Kids have the most philosophical questions right at bedtime. Have you noticed that? Two hours of that nonstop for this couple. They hired a parenting coach who helped them set a routine, helped them stick to it. They were able to cut that time in half, which still feels too long to me. But people wonder why parents would shell out hundreds of dollars for suggestions they might be able to find on their own. A simple Google search, a book, asking your friends again, and the answer is this. Why do they do it? Because parenting is the hardest job in the world. And there's no training for it in advance. You learn it as you go. You learn it on the fly. And can I tell you, while that is certainly true for parents of young kids, it does not change as they get older. 
Uh, I read an article this week about helicopter parenting. You all know what that is, helicopter? Helicopter parents are named that because they hover overhead, overseeing every aspect of their kids' lives. It's basically a, a term for a parent who is way too involved. Now, uh, I'm not gonna try and make you feel guilty if you're a helicopter parent today, I get it. I'm probably a helicopter parent, especially when my kids were real little, but this article I read gave a fascinating statistic. You ready for this? 32% of large companies have heard from an employee's parents at one point or another about their adult children who work for the company. 32% of large companies have had a parent reach out on an adult child's behalf to intervene in their work. Sometimes a mom trying to convince a, a hiring manager that her son is a, a real self-starter. Uh, sometimes, sometimes a dad calling a, a, about their daughter before she accepts a job to ask about their healthcare benefits. Uh, there is a thing happening today where, where helicopter parents continue to hover even after their kids finish college. This article talked about three different kinds of parents that involve themselves in their kids' workspace. Um, the reconnaissance parent who does a job search for their adult son or daughter, gathering information about a company, uh, creating their kid's resume, offering advice on interviewing, maybe even quietly attending a career fair for them. Okay, the low altitude helicopter parent who would actually submit a resume on their behalf or introduce themselves to recruiters or call managers to arrange interview, interviews. They almost act as if uh, they're their kid's agent, right? And then finally, the guerrilla warfare helicopter parent who would go with their adult child to a job interview. Or they would contact a hiring manager to negotiate the terms of an offer. Um, by the way, <laughs> guerrilla warfare. Who do you think is more likely to do that, moms or dads? Dads. Dads. Dads call to complain when their kids are fired. Dads let HR departments know that, that their child deserves a better salary. It's dads. All right, now I'm going to guess that that is not you. That's not most of you. But what it speaks to is something in us that wants to ensure that our kids or our grandkids, uh, whether they're newborns or they're adults with real jobs, it speaks to this thing in us that wants to ensure our kids succeed. Either we want to prevent our kids from experiencing failure and disappointment. None of us like seeing our kids experience that. Or we want to make sure they reach the pinnacle of achievement and success so we get involved to push them toward those goals. Or we have some regrets about decisions that we've made in our own lives. And we think that if we can get them to, to choose differently, their life will be different than ours. Better. All right, those three thoughts, I want to prevent failure, I want to ensure massive achievement, and I want to save them from turning into me. Those thoughts tend to lead to helicopter parenting. And even if they haven't done that for you, those three things might keep you up all night. We're in this series talking about the things that cause you to lose sleep. Last week, we talked about your significant other. Today, I want to talk to you about your kids or your grandkids, whether they are five weeks old or 50 years old. I want to share with you some truths that God has for you in Scripture that will help you calm down, settle in. Yes, love your kids and work for them to have the greatest lives they can, but also not be so fearful that it causes you to do more harm than good. By the way, 
That's a real thing. In a recent test, college students who reported that their parents were over-involved or smothering or interfering or controlling, those kids had greater anxiety, greater depression, increased feelings of entitlement, and less ability to cope effectively with everyday problems of life. You can do more harm than good with your involvement. So can I share some truths to just help you settle in? Before I do, I know that some of you might not have kids of your own or grandkids, but at the very least, you have someone in your life that you're mentoring, that you're coaching, somebody younger than you, and maybe you have concerns about them that keep you up at night or affect you some other way. You don't have to have kids for what we're talking about today to be meaningful to you. You just have to have some person or people that you find yourself worried about. If that's the case, this will be good for you too. And again, for those of you who are parents, I will say, this is not a sermon on parenting today. Uh, Those are great, but that's another series for another time, how to be a better parent. This is a sermon, you ready? On how not to be a worse parent. Uh, or, or, or really, I, I could have called it, when you are not a perfect parent and your kids or grandkids are not perfect kids, what God would have you know. Uh, I want to start with a story out of Luke 2. Uh, this is a story about when Jesus was a kid. And it says in verse 41, we'll put it up, every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. So Jesus and his parents, they did not live in Jerusalem, but every year they traveled there for Passover, spring break in Jerusalem. He has been doing this all 12 years that he's been alive. Now that is important. Remember that. He's a 12-year-old that is incredibly familiar with this vacation spot. Verse 43. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day, and then they began looking for him among their relatives and their friends. Okay, let's stop right there. Mary and Joseph lose Jesus. How in the world could this happen? How do you leave Jerusalem, head back home, and it takes you a day, a full day, until you realize that your son is not with you? Um, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands right now, but how many of you may or may not have lost your kid in the store at some point accidentally? I said, don't raise your hands. Don't raise your hands. Uh, you, you are at Target, and you're looking at the electronics section, and they want to go across the aisle to the toy section, and you say, sure, go for it. And 15 minutes later, you finish what you're doing. You almost leave the store forgetting that they're still in there. Maybe you realize when you get to the car. I'm not saying I've done that, but some of you, that might be very familiar. Uh, I'll, t- I'll tell you what I have done. Um, Andrea and I, we get here uh, to Crosswinds at different times on Sunday morning. And uh, often, one of us has to stay later or we're, we're going somewhere else afterwards. So we take two cars. And uh, multiple times, each of us have left this church campus and left a child or two here. <laughs> uh, fortunately, you're trustworthy people, most of you. Uh, sometimes, these things happen in our lives. But I'll say, whatever we did... It took us about five or 10 minutes to realize our mistake. Mary and Joseph went an entire day. How does that happen? Well, here, truth be told, when people would travel to Jerusalem for the Passover, they would travel in groups. 
big groups would all go together and they would return home together and Jesus would have been playing with other kids and come on, he was 12 and they've done this road trip every year for 12 years and I can imagine him saying to his parents, do I need to stay close to you guys or can I go ride with so-and-so? And the men probably traveled in a different part of the caravan than the women and the kids probably ran back and forth and they played with each other wherever they, they wanted in the caravan or alongside it. Okay, whatever the case, whatever the case, Mary and Joseph obviously believed in free range parenting. We can recognize that. And they thought that it would be okay. It was not. They lost Jesus. <laughs> now, think about the significance of that for a second, all right? You are the mom and dad that had an angel appear to you and tell you that God is going to entrust you with the Savior of the world. I am going to give him to you to be his guardians. Don't mess this up. How are you going to recover from losing him? Like, what do you say to God when you pray that you find him? It says that they began looking for him among their relatives and their friends and the rest of the caravan, which had to be terribly embarrassing. And verse 45 says this, when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple courts. Three days, three days. This is not five minutes at Target, 10 minutes at Crosswinds. This is not they got to school 20 minutes late to pick Jesus up and he had to sit in the office and wait. This is three days. I don't know what you've done, but I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that misplacing your kids for three days is probably not one of them. And actually, right there, right here, before we even know what happens in the rest of the story, there's a truth for us that might help you get some sleep. You ready? The first truth out of scripture for today, Jesus' parents didn't always get it right either. Jesus' parents didn't get it right either. Okay, turn to the person next to you, look them in the eye, and you say, Jesus' parents didn't get it right either all the time. When your head hits the pillow at night and you're questioning if you are doing this parenting thing, this grandparenting thing, this, this mentoring thing right, and you're regretting the mistakes that you've been making, and you're thinking, man, I'm in over my head. I don't know if I'm any good at this. Okay, remember this. Jesus' parents didn't always get it right either, and God still chose them. God still chose them. Isn't it interesting that God the Father would choose two very flawed people to parent his son? I mean, I mean we don't know every detail about their lives, but if, if this story is any representation, they were not perfect parents. And God still chose them, and Jesus still turned out kind of okay, wouldn't you say? And, and I, I wonder if some of you here need to know that it is okay that you don't always get it right. It's okay if you make mistakes, even big ones. It's not the end. Now, why is it not the end? Because, because of the next part of this passage, verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. It goes on. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? 
Jesus has been in the temple learning from the teachers, and Mary says, Jesus, why did you do this to us? Notice this phrase right here, anxiously searching. We've been up all night. And look at his answer. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Okay, she's saying, we're your parents. Why aren't you with us? I am your mother. This is your father. How dare you disobey us? And Jesus says, actually, I am with my father in his house right now. He's saying, mom, God is as much my parent as you. Now, is it dad? I don't like that. (laughs) Nobody is my kid's dad but me. But in a spiritual sense, they have a father in heaven. And here is why this matters. There's another really important truth right here out of this story. Maybe the most important one I'll give you all day. God loves my kids more than I do. God loves your kids even more than you. I don't know how you feel when you hear me say that. You might be a little bit offended by that. Nobody loves my kids as much as I do, let alone more. I get it. It sounds weird. But the truth is, there is an all-loving God whose love is different than yours. See, his love is not contingent on anything going right in your kids' lives, It's not contingent on on your kids treating him well or following him well or remembering his birthday or obeying or not mouthing off. And if you love your kids, your grandkids, then believe me, you want a God who loves your kids better, stronger, more than you do. Last week, uh, all over the news, we saw Hurricane Hillary making its way across the Pacific, uh, turned into a tropical storm that was going to flood Southern California, did a fair amount of damage. And uh, my daughter, Quinn, who Andrea mentioned earlier, turns 20 tomorrow. I cannot believe she's 20. Like when we came to Crosswind, she was a preschooler. That's nuts to me. Uh, My daughter is in college down in Southern California, and I texted her, and I called her, and I said, do you know there's a hurricane headed your way? And she said, it's fine, Dad. It's just rain. And I said, I said but, but do you know what you'll do if the power goes out? Do you know not to drive in any big puddles? All right. Part of why we want a helicopter is, well, what if something goes wrong and they don't know how to handle it? I love my daughter. I want to make sure nothing is going to happen. And who's going to take care of her when she's gone if not me? No one loves her more than me and her mom. All right, you know what gives me comfort? When I remember she has a father in heaven who is with her, with her when I can't be, and as much as I love her, with a love that I did not think could be outmatched, God loves her more than I do. And that helps me sleep. Now, to get to the third truth, let's dive further into this verse we're in, verse 49, all right? The Greek here that has been translated, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house, mom? A better translation might be, didn't you know that I would be doing the things of my father. Jesus is saying, mom, didn't you know that there are some things that God would have me do right now? Okay, real quick, what is the agenda that God has for him? What are the things that God would have him do? Well, all right, well, Jesus healed people, and he, he cast out demons, and he preached, and he turned water into wine. Those are the things of the father, the things that God would have him do. But he's not doing those things, right? He's sitting among the teachers. He's, he's listening. He's asking questions. And if I were Mary and Joseph, I would think those things probably do not feel all that important. 
I mean, if Jesus said, Mom, Dad, didn't you know I was making the blind see these three days and the lame walk and the dead rise? Of course I'm here in Jerusalem. Then Mom and Dad might say, this is important. You made the right choice, son, if those are the kinds of things of the Father that he is doing. But listening to teachers, asking questions, we have teachers back home. Um, if I were his parents, I would have said, oh, really, Jesus, you're listening to teachers? How many of the people at this temple had a close encounter with an angel like your mom and me? We're kind of big deals. <laughs> if, I, if I were Mary, I would have said, hey, look, Catholic churches are going to have statues of me for the next 2,000 years. <laughs> Jesus, we can answer any of your questions. You don't need these people. But here's another important truth from this moment in this passage. Your kids will someday arrange their lives around something other than you. Your kids will someday arrange their lives around something. Doesn't that hurt a little bit? I heard you go, oh, I feel it too. While your kids, while your kids and you or your grandkids and you are deeply intertwined, a day will come when they arrange their lives around something else. It might be when they're 12, it might be when they're 50, but it will not be you. Let's pray that they arrange their lives around the things of God. Didn't you know, Mom, that I would be doing the things of God? Didn't you know, Mom, that I'm not doing your thing? I'm going to be doing my thing. And hopefully their thing is God's thing. Okay, this isn't a parenting message today. The goal today is not to give you truth about how to be a better parent, but if I could just squeeze in one. Pray that when your kids stop doing your thing, they do God's thing. Pray that they do God's thing, which leads me to a fourth truth. And this one comes from an entirely different part of the Bible, the book of Jeremiah. Um, fortunately, you don't need too much backstory other, other than maybe you need to know that Jeremiah was a prophet. And God had to call him. That's what God did. He'd call people. He'd say, I need you to be a prophet. And here's the way that God does that with this guy. He says to Jeremiah, the first thing he says, Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you, Jeremiah, in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Okay, listen to that. As God begins to call him, he says, Jeremiah, before you were born, I had a purpose in mind for you. You think that I'm calling you to be a prophet right now. By the way, he was about 20 years old when this happened. You think I'm calling you now, but 20 years ago I called you to be a prophet. You just didn't know it yet. In fact, he says, before I formed you in the womb. So 21 years ago, before your mom was pregnant, I knew I wanted you to be a prophet. You were literally, literally made for this. And that was true about Jesus, and it's true about Jeremiah, and it's true about your kids and your grandkids. Let me give you another truth to help you sleep. Fourth truth, your children were created for God's purposes, not yours. God has a purpose in mind for your kids, and it might not be. In fact, it very likely is not your purpose for them. Um, I think we all have dreams for our kids. You know, maybe it's to take over a family business. Uh, maybe it's to be the best in a certain industry. Maybe, maybe it's to see them make a lot of money so that they can take care of their parents someday, especially if both of their parents are pastors. Uh, I'm just saying that's a thing. <laughs> 
We have dreams for our kids, right? It's hard for our dreams to not turn into purposes for them. It's hard for our dreams to not turn into purposes. And back to this helicopter parenting thing, no wonder. No wonder. If I have a purpose for my kid, then I need to limit their failure. And I need to ensure their success and make sure they don't do things that I think they'll do that they may regret like I did. How do I keep them in line with the purpose or on track toward the purpose? But guess what? If your children were created for God's purpose, not yours, guess what? That's not your responsibility to keep them on track toward the purpose. In fact, here is the greatest thing about God's purpose. Ready? Even if your kids or your grandkids screw up, God can still accomplish his purposes through them. You know how I know that? Can I remind you of two perfect examples? Mary and Joseph, whose purpose was to parent the savior of the world, and they lost him for three days. God's purpose is far more foolproof than yours. Which actually brings me to the fifth and final truth, which might help you get some sleep. You who find yourself laying awake at night, thinking about how to solve a problem with your kids, fix what's wrong with your grandkids, figure out why the people you're mentoring are not doing this or that. Okay, here's a truth from scripture that you need to know. God began the work in them and he will complete it. Would you say that one with me? I'll say it first and then we can say it together, okay? God began the work in them and he will complete it. Let's say it together. God began the work in them and he will complete it. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is Paul right here writing to the church of Philippi that he misses, can't wait to see them again. And here's what he says, I am confident. I have confidence in you. And the reason I have confidence in you, it is not because you won't screw up or because the world won't get in the way of you. Because I know you're going to make mistakes and I know, I know things are going to go wrong. I am confident because God has begun something in you. And what God starts in you, he completes. And parents, grandparents, teachers, mentors, as your kids stumble along the way and you find yourself concerned and uncertain and up all night, you must know God has begun something in your kids and he will complete it. And maybe, maybe as I say that today, this is really a truth about you. Maybe it's something you needed to hear about you this morning. God has started a work in you. He will complete it. I am confident in you because of this. God finishes what he started, even in you. Parents here right now, you have the hardest job in the world. But what makes it hard is not just being a parent. It's being a parent who knows that their kids will someday arrange their lives around something other than us, that they were created for God's purposes, not ours, and that he will complete the work he started in them. And, and most importantly, most importantly, the hard part is knowing that as much as you love your kids, God loves them even more. All right, would you stand with me as we pray together? God, right now, I just think that you have given us such gifts, younger people in our lives that we build into. But God, 
we build into them for you, for your purpose. So that, that when we lie asleep at night, God, or, or, or when we sit nervously outside an audition or a tryout, God, when, when we put our arm around them after a, a rough breakup, when we wipe their tears after they fail or lose or learn something the hard way, God, may you remind us that you have them. You love them. And even though we have to let them go, you will not let them go. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for coming today. We'll see you next week.